0: thank you uh, pastor zelani it's so good to be here thank you for the invite and um, i'm looking forward to spending a bit of time this morning and you said i got uh, a one hour hey an hour okay fantastic no i'm joking he, he's actually given me a very strict half an hour so i'm gonna to have to behave myself this morning uh, so zelani says i'm from youth with a mission Um, there's a few guys at the back just can you just give me a wave this morning and also erica can you give me a wave just to say okay make made me feel at home thank you so much and thank you for coming with this morning. My wife and kids uh, are ministering at One City this morning in Westville, which is where um, we uh, find our, our church home uh, outside of uh, the mission. And um, yeah, I've been in South Africa for, geez, 50, almost 15 years, hey, sure. And uh, I'm from the UK originally. Just kind of have to forgive me on that one, sir. Um, but uh, yeah, look, we we we, lo- we love South Africa so much and you know, Zelani asked me a few weeks back now, he said, you know, could you come and preach? And I said, you know, well, look, I'm pretty busy. What, what do you want me to preach on? He said, I want you to preach on the Holy Spirit. So I said, no problem. I'm, I'm there. And then uh, uh, last Sunday, as you know, was Pentecost Sunday, right? Did you, did you get a Holy Spirit message last Sunday? No. Come on, guys. So uh, um, I said to Zalini, are you sure you want, you want me to, you sure you got your dates right? And he said, oh, whoops, I've, I've actually got them wrong. Could you come the week after? And I said, well, what do you want me to preach on then? So He said, Romans chapter seven and chapter eight. I thought, blimey. But look, I'm going to do my best this morning, friends, because as Peter says, uh, Paul is, is quite tricky to understand sometimes. Hey, I don't know if you find that when you're reading his stuff. But um, actually, Romans chapter eight is all about life in the spirit. And so um, if you uh, didn't get a message on the Holy Spirit last week, it's okay. Because you're going to get one this week anyway. (laughs) And before we get into uh, Romans 8, it's, it's, it's worth briefly looking at Romans chapter 7. See, in Romans chapter 7, we hear Paul affirm that the law was good. But because of the weakness of the flesh, sin used the law to bring condemnation and death. And that was primarily death in our relationship with God, but also death across the board in our lives and our relationships with other people, our relationships to the world around us. Paul's heart cry in Romans 7 is really poignant. It it stands out. Paul cries out like this. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's kind of quite an intense thing to say. Paul cries out in anguish. Because even though he trusts the goodness of God's law, he's unable to keep it. Now, there is a genuine debate between theologians regarding chapter 7, whether Paul is talking only about his unregenerative life as a Pharisee, that's before he encountered Christ, or whether he is talking about his life before Christ, and he's talking about the Christian life too. There's, there's a debate, and there's some really heavy hitters who disagree on that. And so what I can say this morning to you is that whether Paul is only referring in chapter 7 to his life before Christ, or actually his life before Christ and his life after he becomes a Christ follower, it's clear that if you're trying to live a righteous life, this is what Paul, is one of his points is in Romans, if you're trying to live a life which is right with God in right relationship with God, by keeping the law, that is by human effort or willpower, the very thing that you're going to try and do, you will fail to do. And, and you know, I thought of a practical example of that. So the other day, um, uh, I, I let my wife drive my car. And uh, the next day when I came to drive the car, it wouldn't start. I asked her, what's going on? She couldn't explain it. And then I said, okay, well, we're going to have to jumpstart this car then. Now, my wife doesn't know how to jumpstart a car, so she had to push. It's just how it worked out. It sounds bad, but that's the honest truth. Fortunately, our driveway is quite flat. Um, But as she pushed the car, it is true to say that I was driving it without the engine being turned on because the car was moving, albeit very, very slowly. Under considerable effort, I might add, from my wife. Now, you could say, well, was I driving the car? Well, the answer is yes, I was behind the wheel. I was steering it. And then, of course, I popped the clutch and then the engine started. But when the engine came to life, man, there was power. There was ease. I still had to drive the car, friends. I still had to revisit. I still had to rev the engine, right? But it was a completely different experience. Life without the Spirit, is like us trying to drive a car by pushing it around. It is fundamentally not how God has designed us to live the Christian life. And although I'm fairly certain that Paul didn't own a car, that's what Paul realized. As a Jew trying to keep a covenant, an agreement with God, trying to keep a relationship with God by keeping the rules, he failed, the consequences wretched man that i am self-loathing hopelessness insecurity and distance with god and i remember being a young christian in church many years ago in the uk and i thought christianity was a moral religion so i thought that christianity was about doing good and keeping the rules god's rules his ten commandments and so my predominant experience of going to church was one of guilt and exhaustion. It almost seemed that every week, whatever the preacher was saying, he knew what I'd been up to Monday through Saturday. And it didn't feel good. And so I decided, because every day I was pitching up, every Sunday I was pitching up feeling miserable, feeling like a wretched man. I wouldn't have used Paul's words, but that's how it felt. Failing to live up to God's standard. I thought, man, I can't do this anymore. And so I left the church. And I tried to live a moral life or what I thought was the good life uh, without God. But actually, for anybody who has a standard that they're trying to keep in order to justify themselves, they will fail to keep it. See, the rules that we use, even if you're not a Christian, to judge the behavior of others, if you strictly apply them honestly to your own life, whether you're a Christian or not, We will fail to live up to our own standards. You know, that idea is illustrated by the American theologian and philosopher Francis Schaeffer. See, he said this. He said, if every little baby that was ever born in the world had a tape recorder hung around its neck. Now, some of you don't know what tape recorders are, but they're just devices that record stuff, okay? And if that tape recorder only recorded the moral judgments which that child, as he grew, bound other people by. It might be much lower than the biblical standard, the biblical law, but it would still be moral judgments. And eventually, every person, he said, comes to that great moment where he stands before God as judge. Suppose then God simply touches the tape recorder button and each man heard played out his own words of all those statements by which he had bound other people in moral judgment. He could hear it going on for years, thousands and thousands of moral judgments made against other people not aesthetic judgments, but moral judgments, then God will simply say to the person, though he'd never heard the Bible, now where do you stand in light of your own moral judgments? The Bible points out that every voice would be stilled. All men would have to acknowledge that they've deliberately done things which they knew to be wrong. Nobody could deny it. The point is this. If God exists and only holds us to our own standards, we're in serious trouble. If we want to play God, And have a standard, then we're hypocrites. And that's what I discovered trying to live a life without God. I was exhausted. And if I wanted to be honest, I found empty pleasure. But I made a mess of my life because I actually didn't know how to live. And there was no way back. And that's why Romans chapter 7 and 8 are really important. See, in Romans chapter 6, Paul is objectively looking at what God has done. But in Romans chapter 7 and 8, what we get is how we live out the Christian life in human experience. And that's super helpful as we try and figure out what it means to follow God in the world, right? See, we know we still fail. We know we still get things wrong. We still sin. And so we need to understand, well, what does that mean for me? And what does that mean for how I live the Christian life? And how do I deal with things when other people mess up, when other people fall? So remember Paul's lament, wretched man that I am. He asks this question after he says that. He says, who will rescue me from this body of death? Who will free me from this slavery to the law of sin? And here's the point that Paul is wanting to develop. Being a Christian means resting in the finished work of the cross. But it also means living a spirit-filled life that brings genuine change. And demonstrates the lordship of Christ in our life. So what Paul is addressing here then in Romans 8, as we come to the text, is what the normal Christian life looks like. And one of the things that we can say is that Paul is definitely not advocating a defeated life of sin as the normal Christian experience. So let me read Romans chapter 8, 1 to 17. And it's a long bit of scripture, but it's still a lot shorter than the two chapters That you were blessed with this morning so this is what paul says in romans 8 there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in christ jesus from the law of sin and death for god has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This passage is rich, but I want to highlight three aspects that Paul gives us to live a life empowered by the Spirit. And here are my three headings this morning so you know where we're going. Number one, he's come to stay. Number two, he's come to set us free. And number three, he has come to testify. Our hearts, so let's look at point one. He's come to stay. Christianity is an experiential religion, that means if you don't experience God in some way, you're not a Christian. Okay, what we believe is that God has taken up residence, He lives in us. So, you know, often when we pray in church, we'll, we'll pray something like this. Um, uh, Holy Spirit, please would you come and and attend our worship meeting? He's already here. (laughs) That's the point of Pentecost. And when we think of Pentecost, we tend to think maybe of the power gifts or of Peter preaching or the, the enabling of the Spirit for the mission of God. And those are legitimate aspects of what happened at Pentecost. But on a more fundamental level, What we learn is that God has come to dwell with his people, with you and me in temples of flesh. No other religion makes that claim. God's intention through Christ was to come and take up residence in us as human temples that carry his precious Holy Spirit. Christianity, therefore, is not primarily about going to be with Jesus in heaven when we die. It's heaven coming down and God dwelling with us now. Now, that's game-changing thinking because it means not only that we can enjoy God now, but we can be empowered to live for him now. In other words, Christianity is not spiritual life insurance. When we look at the passage, we can see who has come to stay. Verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Verse 10, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit of life because of righteousness. Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, well, What's Paul saying is he's, he's using different terms interchangeably. The Holy Spirit living in you. The Spirit of Christ in you. God who raised Christ from the dead in you. Paul uses these terms almost interchangeably. And we can understand that. It's actually the person of the Spirit who resides in us. But Paul is expressing a mystery of the Trinity. The Trinity, this triune God, is so one. That is, it's almost as if the person of Christ lives in us. It's almost as if the Father has come to stay with us. And in this temple of clay, in our broken bodies, and we are still trusting for the resurrection of the dead. We are still trusting to be with Jesus one day, to have our physical bodies healed too, right? To rule and reign with Christ. But right now, in this in this broken jar of clay, we have treasure. And that treasure isn't the promises of God, it's God himself. He is our treasure church. And it's one thing we need to be, we need to resolve in our hearts. God is not going anywhere. He's committed to you as his house. He is not moving out. Even if you're a terrible housemate, even if you're a terrible spouse, God isn't going anywhere. And we need to know that because we we kind of often feel that that's that's not the case. We can feel very much like our lives are a mess. And looking at some of you this morning, I can see your lives are a mess. No, I'm joking. We we, we all know that we don't measure up. We all know that we've got mess and we've got stuff to deal with. Because of that, we can be tempted to think maybe he leaves when we sin. Maybe his presence is more like a visit. Maybe we need to ask God, hey Lord, would you come and please pitch up because I don't feel you right now. That is wrong. (laughs) Listen, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh And for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So think about this for a second. Jesus died for us whilst we were still enemies of God. He's way more committed to you and faithful towards you than you could possibly imagine. See, Paul puts it like this later on in chapter in chapter 8, verse 31. He says, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies, who is to condemn. There is no condemnation. In other words, we don't have daisy theology. Did you ever as a kid take a daisy? Maybe this is just a UK thing. Maybe you don't have daisies here. I've, I've not really noticed in honesty. But you know, you pull the petals out, ladies. You ever done this? He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. No, man. The gospel is he loves you. That's the gospel. And the closest example that I can think of that from human life is marriage. right? Marriage is a picture of the gospel, Right? We covenant with one another for better or worse, in sickness or in health. And you know, the interesting thing is about being a pastor is that sometimes we marry couples who have been living together first and they come to Christ and they decide to get married. And almost always they give this testimony about three months in, after they've got married, even though maybe they've lived together for years. They say, all of a sudden, our relationship became difficult. But why should that be the case if they were living together already? If they already had kids together in some cases. Well, it's because of this, the protection of covenant stops us from trying out of fear. And it allows us to try out of love only. And then we see the state of our hearts. We see how good a lover we really are. Or we see whether our love is contingent upon what we receive. Or it's contingent on the fear, or maybe the person will leave. Sometimes we're abusing Jesus because of that, because we know he's faithful, and we know he's committed. Friends, he's not moving out. He's committed to you. That's the first point. He's come to stay. But he's also come to set us free, friends. You see, that coming to stay causes a new kind of living. And if you think about it, That's kind of obvious, right? Have you ever had someone come and stay with you in your house? Well, I can tell you this. My parents, who are in their 70s, flew out last year after a long break uh, during COVID. We didn't see them. So they decided to come for two months and live with us as a family. What a pleasure. Now, we have three small children, eight, six, and four. And they love their grandparents very, very much. But life in our household had to change. It turns out grand and grandad don't get up at five in the morning. I can't imagine why that's the case, but they don't. It also turns out that grand and grandad like to have a nap at four o'clock. And it turns out that they like to have a quiet nap. Now, we don't know what quiet naps are in our house. But they're also really positive and cool things. Like, for example, for my wife and I, One of the things which is a debate in our house is, well, who picks the kids up from school? Who takes them to ballet? Who takes them to all these different activities, 50 million of which they have? It's like they're running around in the afternoon and it just is not good. Mum and dad love to pick the kids up from school. They love to take our daughter to ballet. Wow, what a treat that was, hey? The point is simpler. We had to learn to do life in a new way. Now, as Christians, we have to make a choice to walk by the Spirit. See, righteousness is both referring to a right relationship which has been imparted to us, but also how we live in light of that relationship. Well, how does that work? Well, in the example of a guest coming to stay, we want to know our guest's preferences. Maybe we want to leave a little welcome basket of goodies. Have they got a sweet tooth or a savory tooth? We want to give good hospitality because they're important to us. We value the relationship. We love the person. So here's the question then this morning. If your heart is a home for the God of the universe, how's your hospitality looking? You know, I did an outreach in Namibia many, many years ago, and uh, you know, the guy said, okay, you know, we're going to have this outreach in the rural areas of Namibia. I thought, fantastic. And I was just imagining what kind of guest house we were going to live in. And I was wondering, I wonder if that guest house will have a pool or maybe we'll just have a nice garden. And I was quite surprised when I found that I was going to be living in a 2.5 meter by 2.5 meter tent. It looked to me like something that had been bought from Toys R Us. Okay. And uh, what was even worse was, Um, I had to share this tent with another guy called Nico. And, um, you know, whatever uh, Nico did, I basically had to do and vice versa because it was so small. So if he he ate curry flavor pot noodles, two-minute noodles, it was like I was experiencing them too. You know, if he watched something on his phone in the morning, I watched that thing too. If I did my audio devotions, he was blessed to do them too. It's not like God is taking up residence in a huge mansion, right? He's come to take up residence in us. He is not far away. He is close. So what are we exposing him to? What are the places that we take Jesus to? What are the things that we make Jesus watch? Does it cause him delight or sorrow? But there's, not, there's more. Jesus isn't just changing our behavior but he's also changing our desires see the purpose of the spirit is to glorify the son that's the holy spirit's job right he's like a floodlight illuminating the beauty and the person of jesus and what jesus has done for us so i'm from the uk like i said and many years ago uh, i uh, had an office opposite york minster this beautiful old cathedral beautiful gothic cathedral And around York Minster at night, especially at Christmas, there's all these beautiful floodlights that light up the Minster and they project all kinds of different colors and patterns onto the building. And people come from all over to see it. Well, that's the job of the Spirit is to illuminate Jesus. And the more that the Spirit does that, the more that we see Jesus illuminated, the more that we're moved by the gospel, the more that it melts our hearts the more the things of the world lose their grip and the more that we desire the things of God. And romantic people know that. And I don't know your past, but if you've dated and you've had your heart broken, how many of you know that it's the new love when it comes that not just heals, but displaces the old brokenness and the old difficulty we've had in our previous relationships? The Spirit is causing us to fall deeper in love with Jesus. And this deplaces and moves out our old, broken loves, our disordered loves. Because the love of Jesus is better. And this work is the Spirit's work. But we can ask the question, are we partnering with Him in that? Are we complying with what He's doing? Paul describes that action in this part Of Romans is walking with the Spirit how do we do that friends well in their commentary on Romans I did actually read some books for this you'll be pleased to know Roger Forster and Paul Marsden say this it's all about mindset if we focus purely on the physical realm whether that be in the flesh in the sense of just enjoying sinning or in the sense of purely human self-effort to be good then it leads to spiritual death. To set their minds upon is a Greek phrase, to take the side of. Because of the Spirit's presence in the believer, we now have an alternative way of doing life. So in us, we have two alternative minds, so to speak, and we choose on which to focus. This is played out in practice whenever we keep line of sight of Jesus. And this is what the spiritual disciplines are for, friends Bible reading, prayer, worship, fellowship, silence, community, contemplation, coming together to celebrate on a Sunday, to name a few. These are simply spaces we choose to focus on Jesus and ways in which we offer our surrender to the Spirit so He can reshape us. So this is what i'm trying to say my dad uh, loves boats and so he bought himself a sailing boat it's a 23 foot postal boat it's got a tiny electric motor on it just to get him out past the jetty into the main bit of the lake and last time uh, i went home my dad basically begged me to go out in november on the lake so i can assure you it was freezing cold i had every single item of clothing on Um, that I could have, and I was still cold. But the interesting thing was, after he'd used the electric motor to get us out into the middle of the lake, um, it was quite a windy day, so the boat uh, actually wasn't stationary. And so the wind on the side of the boat, uh, even though the sails weren't up, actually was moving the boat around. But as soon as my dad unfurled the main sail, the wind caught that sail, and man, the boat started to move, hey? That's what the spiritual disciplines are like. It's like us unfurling a sail. It's like the Holy Spirit is at work, irrespective of how thick-headed we might be, of how busy we might be, of how distracted we might be, of how addicted to this we might be. But if you want to grow and you want to move in the Christian life, then God has created ways Where we can take a posture of surrender and catch what the Spirit is doing. Are you with me? I thought about this scripture this morning. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So that's the second thing we've had. uh, He's come to stay. He's come to set us free. And then lastly, as I land, we're going to look at, he's come to testify to our hearts. The Spirit confirms our identity as children of God. That is both a fact we learn and something that we live out and experience. He says this in verse 15. If you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We have a father. And we have a kind of access to the father that's one of tenderness and approachableness. That's the Abba in the father, right? It's something like our English word, daddy. Daddy. You know, many years ago, uh, I was preaching at one city. My daughter was just able to walk. I think she was probably about three years old. And, uh, you know, I was like mid-flow in my preach. And she just came up to me right at the front there. Everybody's watching. Uh, I don't know where my wife was at that moment, but she obviously wasn't on a game. And then my daughter just stretches out her hands and says, look, I want you right now, you know. She's not interested in uh, the preach or the sermon or she could care less about the 300 people that are sat there. She just wants a dad. That's the same way that we can come to dad. It's, It's not formal. It's intimate. Do you approach him with intimacy? My daughter knew that she could just come. We can come to the Father and the work of the Spirit causes us to remember we're adopted. What does that mean? Well, from a first century perspective, it means that we have all the position and privilege of sons. Paul here is talking about our full inher- inheritance in God, both present now as firstfruits, but also the fullness of that inheritance is still to come. The redemption of the body, to rule and reign with Christ. Our cry now is a guarantee of our full inheritance. And that cry is important because so often we are tempted to save ourselves either by by believing we can live the Christian life in our own strength or because when we fail, we're tempted to live out of that place of the garden and to return back to guilt and shame and hide from God. And at those times, it's easy for our hearts to condemn us. And I don't know if you've struggled with that, Particular sin that you couldn't shake. And in those aspects, it's easy to sit in condemnation and defeat as a Christian. This can tempt us to abandon grace and go back to earning. And after I came to Jesus when I was a new Christian, I knew that God had done something real in my heart. But I didn't understand some of the foundational things about the Christian life. So, I remember having messed up on a number of occasions. I remember as a young Christian bargaining with God God, I'll never do that again. Lord, if you overlook this one, I'll go to church twice next week. God, I will do uh, so many good deeds to make up for this thing that I've done. You see, that kind of thinking and that kind of living demonstrates a lack of understanding. Of what the gospel is and what God has done for us so how did I get out of it friends well this God is so faithful when we are feeling convicted because we've done something wrong it's helpful to understand that this feeling of conviction conviction is not God abandoning us but rather the evidence of his presence and the ministry of the spirit to us you see conviction leads us back to God condemnation leads us away from him see when we're convicted god is treating us as sons not illegitimate children in those moments where the enemy comes and tells us we are disqualified because of what we've done when he brings guilt and shame and tries to convince us to hide from god the spirit is coming to find us to clothe us and he testifies to our hearts That God has come to stay and that he's not leaving. That God is good and that he loves us. That the finished work of the cross, the work of Christ, is more than sufficient. So here's my conclusion for us this morning, church. As we go out into the week, let us be led by the Spirit and live in the reality that he's come to stay that he's come to set us free and that he's come to testify to our hearts. I want to end with this quote from C.S. Lewis, speaking of the transforming work of God in our lives. Lewis said this. He said, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised but presently he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense what on earth is he up to the explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of throwing out a new wing here putting on an extra floor there running up towers making courtyards You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Let's pray. Lord, we lift our hearts to you this morning and we thank you for your word, Jesus. We thank you for Romans chapter 8. We thank you for the reality of the cross. And Jesus, we thank you that we stand in your presence this morning forgiven Lord but Lord we thank you that that forgiveness has a purpose to it Lord and that is relationship with you Jesus and God we want to move deeper in our intimacy with you Lord let us not be satisfied with with a kind of spiritual life insurance but Lord let us delight in you on a daily basis and Jesus we ask that you would Come and speak to us now by your Spirit. Lord, help us to reorder our lives. Lord, help us to keep that line of sight, Jesus, on you. And Father, when we do mess up, thank you that your grace is sufficient, Lord. Thank you that you've promised never to leave us nor forsake us. In your mighty name we pray. Amen.